Welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Vanita Jones, and I am part of the teaching team, and it is my great honor to be here this morning as we continue our journey through numbers. I bet all of you are as happy as I am to know that there's very little math in this book. <laughs> I was a little worried at first, and I'm excited to know that there are very few actual numbers, but there's a whole lot about who God is and what he is and how he wants to interact with his people right in the book of Numbers. You know, last week we uh, found out that they were about to set out on this journey. And you know, I hope you're starting to realize that this journey that they're embarking on to the promised land is filled with lessons. Lessons for each one of us as we are on our journey to the promised land. And this last week was no exception. It hit me right between the eyes. It hit me right where it hurt. You know, they were setting out. Last week, it was all happy. Amy was up here in her cute little self talking about how wonderful everything was. <laughs> oh, my goodness. They were setting out on the journey, and at the very end, what did we read? It said, they set out from the Mount of the Lord. You could almost feel it. The excitement, it was exciting. And, and, and I bet every tent had spent weeks preparing for this moment to take out on this journey that they were setting out on. They were waiting for the trumpets to blare. How many of you make lists before you travel? I try, I'm just not very good at it. I wanna be that person. But I don't know, I, I, I don't, I'm sure I've shared this with you before. We take a road trip every year, two or three times a year to Colorado with our family, and we've done it for 25 years. And sometimes there are carloads of people caravanning together, and sometimes there's just one car with just a couple people in it. But one thing remains the same, no matter how many people are in that trip with us. There are weeks of preparations leading up to us leaving that house. In fact, those preparations go on for weeks, and they start weeks ahead, and they go right till we pull out of the driveway. And we have lists and lists of things that we're doing. Now, the first 10 chapters of Numbers, that's what they were doing. They're preparing to set off on this journey, and they were so obedient. Amy told us they did everything the Lord commanded them to do. Remember, they not only got God's law, but they implemented it all. They got instructions to build the tabernacle. They did that. They dedicated it. They were set to go. And then we get to chapter 11. Now, how does it start out? Look at the very beginning, the heading. What does it say? The people complain. It's like, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Amy, for buildup. Here I am. I get to teach about the people complaining. And we're going to see a pattern here. I think we know where this is going to go, don't we? I know I know where it's going to go because I've been there. I've been there a whole lot. It's the morning we're about to set out to leave on this journey to Colorado. And everybody's up early because they barely slept a wink. And they're so excited. And we get in the car and everything's ready to go. We pull out of the driveway. We have our hot drinks and the cup holders. And the, we have praise music on the radio. The kids are back there chattering. They like each other. <laughs> and we barely get to the city limits of Fort Worth and they start to fall asleep. It's beautiful. I mean, this is what heaven's got to feel like. Praise me, the sun is rising. There's hot coffee. The kids are asleep. And we get about an hour down the road, and then we hear this. When are we going to stop eating? I'm hungry. 
Okay, and the next one, I need to go to the bathroom. Can we stop now? And then, do we have to listen to this radio station the whole way? Can you change it? And I go from this happy traveler into survivor mode, where you find me about five hours into this trip just drowning my sorrows in munchies. And it goes on for 13 solid hours till we get there. You know, about two years into our travels, Cameron and I learned one valuable lesson, and we've kept it with us for years. It was this trip. It was the year we had a seven-month-old. We had a two-year-old. We had a 10-year-old and one middle school girl. And I could probably stop right here. <laughs> but it really went downhill from there. Before we even got to Colorado, everybody in the car except for Dad had thrown up. <laughs> At least once. And we found ourselves in Eagle's Nest, New Mexico, which is not even on our way to where we go in Colorado, <laughs> because of all the throw-up, we'd missed our turn. And our seven-month-old had filled the diaper so badly that we're standing in the gas station parking lot, and she's, I'm holding her up naked, and Dad is hosing her off. <laughs> and then we had the car seat, and we're hosing the car seat off, and the kids are in there wailing in the car. And it was at that very pivotal moment that Cameron and I realized there are vacations and there are trips. <laughs> and those two things, ladies, are nothing alike. <laughs> Many times we've set out on what we thought was going to be a vacation and within minutes it became a trip. And I would like to suggest that's right where we are as we start chapter 11. I think Israel had started out on their vacation to the promised land. And boy, was it beautiful. The trumpets were blaring and they're setting out. And then we read that first part and it says that people complained. And it had quickly turned into a trip. Let's open up your Bibles to chapter 11. Let's start out. I just want to read the first three verses. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. I wish I'd have had that ability. Because there would have been some fire flying around that place that day. I can tell you that much. But here we are in these first three verses, we see two fundamentally different ways we can handle our complaints. It says that the Israelites complained in the hearing of the Lord. And then we hear that Moses took his complaints to the Lord. And those are in the very first three verses. You know, the Israelites are probably grumbling in their own hearts. We do that, I do it all the time. I bet they were grumbling and complaining to each other. And we know for a fact they grumbled and complained to Moses, their leader. But I don't see anywhere that said they took their complaints to the Lord. They took them to Moses. And they complained in the hearing of the Lord. And we know that the Lord heard them. Because it says he was kindled, his anger was kindled. See, he could hear their grumbles even in the quietness of their own hearts. God knew they were grumbling about what he had given them. Moses, on the other hand, he took his straight to God. And what happens? God answers it, answers his, answers his prayers. And, and Moses knew that God was the one that was going to be able to handle those. So that's where we're going to camp today. No pun intended. We're going to camp right here in these two chapters because it is filled with lessons for us about how we 
should complain or not complain. Now, we don't know exactly what the Israelites were complaining about, but we talked about that in our questions. And if you were in the desert for any length of time, I think I would have a few things to complain about. But it said they complained in the hearing of the Lord, and they didn't take their complaints to the Lord. We also know that he heard it because it said he angered him. And it angered him so much that he sent this fire down and it consumed the outlying camps. Now, I read some commentaries, two different places on this, and, and nobody taught. One camp says that there was some loss of life. One said there wasn't. I don't think they really know. I think the point is it had to be really scary to have fire raining down on you. You would think that would make an impression. Let's continue reading. We're going to start at verse 4, and I'm going to read to verse 9. Now, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel had wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt? It cost nothing. And the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all this manna but this manna to look at. Now, the manna was like coriander seed, and in its appearance like that of bedillium. The people went about and gathered it, and it ground it in handmills and beat it into mortar and boiled it in pots, made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. See, now back in Exodus, Exodus 16 to be exact, shortly after God had rescued the Israelites, and he, in a miraculous way, remember all that? And then he took them through the Red Sea and he parted the waters. He'd done all this amazing stuff for him. They started to complain about no food. Now, rightly so. They were in the desert. And they probably didn't have much when they left. But it's interesting to me that they start not only complain about the lack of food, but they wish they were back in Egypt as slaves. I mean, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? But back in Exodus 16, when they complained about having no food, God told Moses, okay, I see they need food. Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven, and all they're going to have to do is go out and gather it in the morning, just enough for the day, and then they can prepare it and eat it. I also read somewhere that this manna would have had the exact nutrients that they needed because they didn't have a lot of other stuff. And it had sustained them for a long time. So it was, it was exactly what they needed for their physical needs. But they grew tired of it. They grew tired of what God had provided them and they began to complain again. It specifically says this time they wept. I don't know, sounds maybe like a hungry toddler that hadn't had a nap. I bet it was more like wailing. Imagine two million people crying about no food. That would have been so disturbing for Moses. You know, when my kids were hungry toddlers, they wailed. They threw themselves on the ground. They were just dying from no food. These people were wailing. They were craving something other than what God had provided for them. And it sounds like maybe that was all started by, and we see it in verse 4, by this rabble that was traveling with them. Now, this rabble would have been these non-Israelites that kind of got left with them in the Exodus. So they were traveling along with them, and, and most of them probably didn't know the Yahweh God, the God of Israel. And if they did, they probably weren't followers. They didn't know much about him. But there must have been the, these guys rambling on about what they had to eat back in Egypt. And let's be honest, they probably had food to eat back in Egypt because they probably weren't slaves. They probably had access to all of that. I think it's interesting they, they said, remember the fish we ate, it cost nothing. 
It cost nothing. I mean, the Israelites, they were slaves. I mean, the food may have been free, but they weren't. And, and if that food was available to them, it wouldn't have been readily available to them. They were being oppressed by the Egyptians. They were slaves. The Israelites were being influenced by this world around them, and the world around them was this rabble, these non-Israelites that were talking about the stuff that they used to have. And, and I, can't you just see it? Have you ever been in a crowd where they're kind of grumbly about what the food is like or how's the coffee or da oh, yeah. It was better back when we had da And it just keeps growing, and they grumble a little more. And pretty soon the Israelites say, yeah, I mean, we deserve more than this manna. And then I stand here and I think, wow, who am I to say something about the Israelites? I grumble and complain every day. I, you should see me when I leave the fast food place without french fries that they forgot. <laughs> you would have thought I hadn't eaten in 20 years. I, and I begin to even take what he gives me, his word. He gives us his word. It's not just physical food he gives us. He gives us his spiritual food. And, and he gives us his own words written down here in the Bible. And, and guess what? I grow weary with it. We're going to study numbers. It's God's words to us. Every single word in this Bible are God's words to us. He gives them to us to feed us and to sustain us. And guess what? I start getting all weary with it, bored with it. And what do I want to do? I want to fill my brain with something else. I flip on the TV, or I grab my phone, or I pull out my computer, or I go shopping, or I do all these. I could fill that list with a hundred different things that I'll put, start to crave instead of craving God's word. The very thing he provided me to sustain me every day. And like the Israelites, I often get this ungrateful heart. And when I let that ungrateful heart begin to let, help me grumble and complain, I start to slide into other sins. It happens so easily. Look at Romans 1.21 on your verse sheet. Paul is writing to the Romans about this very matter. He says, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's a scary place to be. And then he, he addresses giving thanks in all circumstances in 1 Thessalonians. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He's with us in all circumstances. Now, God eventually responded to these Israelites' complaints about food. He provided uh, meat for them. But it was only after Moses actually cried out to him and to help these grumbling toddlers that he was dragging through the desert. Let's skip over to Numbers eleven thirty one, and I'm going to read how this happened. And then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. And the people arose all that day and all that night, all the next day, and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all over the camp, or all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a great plague. Therefore, the name, was, the play, name of the place was called, a name I cannot pronounce, because they, were buried, they buried the people with the cravings. And then they moved on to Hazareth and set up camp. 
God responded to their wants. Their wants for their want to have more than what he had provided for them by sending this really strong wind, and it was going to end up blowing this uncountable number of quail to them so they could gather them. And, and it's, this in itself is a miracle because, because these quail, this particular one, their natural migration is complete opposite direction of where they were camped. And God sent this strong wind, and by the way, the wind that was blowing that he sent was actually in itself a miracle because they rarely have that type of wind. And it changed the entire flight pattern, the migration pattern of these quail, and sent it right over their camp. Imagine that. They wanted food. They wanted meat. He went to those lengths to give it to them. Not only did he change their normal flight pattern, but he also caused them to fly about three feet off the ground. So it made them really easy to capture, really easy to gather and kill and, and to have to fill the baskets with. Now, it, continued, it says this continued for about two days or so that they gathered, and they each gathered at least 10 homers. Now, that meant nothing to me at first, except I thought, it must be a lot. But I started reading this article about this, just to kind of get a visual of how many quail this actually was. They said that 10 homers equals about 60 to 65 bushels. I don't know if any of you know what a bushel looks like. But it would have been about 60 to 65 bushels per gatherer. Now, these commentaries, these kind of math brainiacs, they, they started saying that the ones that would have gathered would have been the 20-somethings and up that were able-bodied young men, they would have been the ones gathering. Well, we kind of know how many of those there are because we just read about a census, didn't we? They took a census. So they said there would have been roughly 600,000 able-bodied young men out gathering these quail. And so they started doing all this math that involved volume and mass and all this way over my head. And they said that they came to these crazy numbers. They said that there would have been 1,900 birds per gatherer. Now, on the low number, okay, because this was the least amount, it says. 1,900 birds. It would have weighed, this amount of birds, about 475 pounds. That's a lot of quail. So then they did some more math, and they figured up that number of birds with that number of gatherers, and they came up with this crazy number. Are you ready for this? They said they would have gathered 1.14, roughly, billion quail. That's what the B, billion. I mean, I pulled out my calculator. I couldn't believe that. They were right. 600,000 by 1900 is 1.14 billion. And then, to give you a visual, they went on to say, that is the number of quail it would take to fill 525 Olympic-sized pools. What? They didn't gather some quail. They gathered a lot of quail. And so it goes on to say then that they gathered them and they laid them out. They spread them out around the camp. Can you imagine that? It's the desert. It's hot. And these birds are spread all around them. It said, these guys said that number of birds spread out would have covered 3,200 acres. I was blown. I said, Cameron, how many are 20, 32? I can't visualize anything like that. He said, well, that's about half the size of the hunting lease I go to. Oh, well, that makes, that helps. That's great. 
Give me something I can work with. And, and so we started looking in, in the Fort Worth Zoo. We've probably all been there or heard of it. It's 64 acres. It would have covered 50 Fort Worth zoos. That is a lot of quail. Now, I don't know if those numbers are exactly correct. But if you follow their logic and the way they came up with it, it sounds kind of logical. And besides, we know they gathered a whole lot of quail. A whole lot more quail than they really needed. I went a little further and did the math. If you take 2 million and divide it into 1.14 billion, you get 518 birds per person. That's a lot. That is a whole lot of quail. And it seems to me that God had turned them over to their selfish, fleshly cravings. Because we find out that he sent a plague, and, and they all, not all of them, many people died while the food was still in their mouths. It's, it's like they literally ate themselves to death. It's like the Jones's Thanksgiving without football. <laughs> they ate themselves to death. And when we begin to crave things other than the things of God, God sometimes will turn us over to our own cravings. Because he knows that's one way we'll learn to crave him over the things in this world. Look at Romans 1.24 in your verse sheet. It says, Therefore God gave them up into their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And Romans 1.28 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. See, in Numbers 11, 31, and 32, we read about what they did to gather them. We learned about how often they gathered, how much they gathered, what they did after they gathered. But I hope you saw what was missing in there. Not once did we hear them say, thank you. We wanted meat, and you gave us meat. Not only had he provided for their needs by sending them the manna, but he also provided for their wants. He said, I'm going to give you meat. And he sent them these quails, and, and I suggest that maybe these quails were a test of how they would handle what he gave them. And I think they failed that test miserably. You know, it doesn't record how many people died that day because of their ungrateful hearts, but, but apparently it was enough to warrant that this place where this tragic event took place was given a Hebrew name that means the graves of lust or the place of cravings. And then the Israelites just moved on to their next camp, a little bit closer to the promised land. You know, the implications of these Israelites being influenced by the cravings of the world around them and acting on those cravings goes far beyond physical food. God had given the Israelites manna as their daily bread, and God told Moses the reason he was sending that daily bread from heaven. Look at it on, in, on your verse sheet. It's Exodus 16.4. Says then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. See, the manna that God sent the Israelites was not only to meet their physical needs, it was a test to see how they were going to obey his commands. If you remember, there were specific commands that they were to gather just enough for a day and do that for six days, and on the, on the sixth day, they were to gather two days' worth to cover the Sabbath. And he warned the Israelites that the way they treated the daily manna would be a test of their obedience to his word. Look at Deuteronomy 8.3 on your verse sheet. 
And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes to the mouth of the Lord. See, this is a reminder for all of us that the way we treat the Bible is the way we treat God himself. Because the Bible is literally God's words written down and put there to feed us and sustain us each and every day. And to ignore his word or to treat it casually or treat it carelessly or even willfully or willingly disobey it. It's going to bring discipline from your heavenly father. And feeding on the things of this world will not only lead to death, physical death, it leads to death in relationships and other areas of your life. But daily consuming the holy word of God brings not only life into our body, it brings us so much more as well. Look at Jeremiah 15, 16 on your verse sheet. Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord. God of hosts. And then look at what Jesus says to Satan. Satan is tempting him and says, turn these stones into bread. And he's fasting. He's been fasting in the, in the wilderness. And he says to Satan, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, God gives us his words to consume on a daily basis. He's even given us, the, us that believe in him, his Holy Spirit to understand it. But it's com- up to us to cultivate an appetite for it. So when we treat God's word casually or carelessly, we will start to try to satisfy our cravings with everything around us. And eventually that leads us into God's discipline. Let's continue reading. We're going to Numbers 12, verses 1 and 2. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman who he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now, after moving on to their new camp, there was another complaint being tossed around. And it seems like it was being started by Moses' own family members, Aaron, maybe specifically instigated by Miriam. And they were talking about this Cushite woman. He had married a Cushite woman. And... um, most commentaries said that it wasn't an issue with God because this Cushite woman was a follower of Yahweh and believed in, the, in Israel's God. But they used that one thing to begin questioning his authority. Was, he, was God only talked to him? You know, why? Why only him? I, it seems like there maybe was a little jealousy started brewing and then it grew into this full-blown sibling rivalry. And they began to speak against God's chosen servant their own brother Moses. And they, they said, who, who does he think he is? I mean, why would God only speak to him? Let's continue to read and see exactly how that turns out for him. Let's look at, uh, starting at verse three. It says, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, come out you three to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out and the Lord came down on a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam and they both came forward. Can you just see that? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I would have been terrified. 
And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron toward, turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. God's response to their complaints about Moses, that, well, first, he called them all out of the tent. Do you remember that when you were a kid? Everybody come down here! And you're all like, oh, gosh. And then if you were the one and he called you out specifically, you had to go out and away from everybody else, it had to be terrifying. And then he defends Moses. Oh my gosh, did that not just make your heart just leap the way he defended Moses? And then he struck Miriam with leprosy. Now in the next two verses, let's look at that, 11 and 12, we see how Aaron reacts to this leprosy. Aaron said to Moses, he said, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be one as dead whose flesh is eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. We see Aaron turn to Moses and plead to Moses to heal Miriam. He didn't plead to God, mind you. He pleaded to Moses. He begged Moses to heal Miriam. And God's response to Aaron's plea was, Miriam was going to be sent from the camp like they would do when you were declared to have leprosy and she would have to stay there for at least seven days. She would have to be separated from her family. You know, time after time throughout these two chapters, we saw the Israelites, including Aaron and Miriam, grumble and complain in the hearing of the Lord. But we never heard them complain, taking their complaints to the Lord. And at times it was probably in their own hearts, at times it was to each other, and definitely at times it was at Moses, to Moses, their leader. But we never heard them call out to the Lord. Never did we hear them respond with thanksgiving for what he had sent them, not only now, but in the past, what he had provided for them. Their ungrateful hearts led to grumbling and complaining lips, which revealed a complete lack of trust in God. When we don't trust God in our journey, we're saying that we don't trust that he knows what's best for us. We're saying that what he's done for us or what he's provided for us, quite frankly, it's just not good enough. We deserve better. And when we begin to complain about what we think we deserve, our complaining lips begin to reveal the state of our heart. It reveals that we've forgotten God's promises We've forgotten his provision, and we've forgotten his providence. And it comes out in how we grumble and complain. But God's chosen servant, Moses, that's not how he was. He knew better. He knew what David would later say in Psalms 121. It says on your verse sheet, it says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He knew to take his complaints straight to the one who had created everything in the heavens and the earth. He knew he would be the one that could handle anything he took to his feet. Let's read about how Moses handled his frustrations. Now we're going we're to digress and go back 
to chapter 11 again. And I just want to read verse 2 one more time. It says, Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. That right there is a perfect example of both ways that these were handled. It says, When the Israelites were complaining to the Lord, Moses prayed to the Lord. He didn't say, Yeah, you know, you're right. He could have so easily, so easily fallen into the grumbling. You're right. We deserve better than this. Who does God think he is? But he didn't. He went straight to God, the very one who was going to fix the problem. And how did God respond to Moses' prayer? He stopped the fire, he fixed the problem. Now jump down to verse 10, and I'm going to read to verse 15. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give your fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all of these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat and that, we, that we may eat. And I am not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is way too heavy for me. And then he goes on and he says, if you're going to treat me like this, just kill me. You know, the Israelites had been complaining about this bland old manna that God had been sending them. They were weeping, they were crying, they were having temper tantrums, and it had pushed Moses to the bitter end. But he didn't do anything except take it straight to the feet of his heavenly father. And he was so brutally honest. He didn't use all these big churchy words and flowery big words, did he? He just poured his heart out to his heavenly father. See, that's exactly what God desires for all of us to do. He wants us to come to him with our frustrations, our disappointments. All of the times we feel overwhelmed with everything that's going on in our lives. He says, bring him to me. Pour it out to me. Look at Psalm 62.8 on your verse sheet. It says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. See, our honest pleas for his help are music to his ears. Because when we do that, what may sound like we're just pouring out our complaints, to him we're saying, I trust that you have your, my best at your heart, in your heart, and I'm trusting you with my journey. That's what we say when we take those disappointments and frustrations to him. Moses did just that, and the Lord listens to his servant, and he solves those two problems he brings to him. Those two problems were that Moses would need help ministering to all these people. I mean, they had the tabernacle, but there were two million people that needed spiritual guidance and needed help. And then he, was, he wanted God to provide meat for these Israelites, and he had no idea how that could possibly happen for this many people. Look at Numbers 11, 16, and 17. And then it's going to tell us how he solves his very first problem. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is with you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it by yourself alone. 
So Moses felt overwhelmed by his responsibility and he poured his heart out to God. How did God respond? Well, first God said, go gather 70 men, 70 elders that you trust, godly men, and I'm gonna help, I'm gonna give them a, a portion of your spirit that you can, that you do it in front of the Israelites and they'll know that these men have been sent by me and they're gonna be able to minister to these two million people. I'm gonna give you someone to help. Now, these, the commentary said that this most likely wasn't those same guys that he gave him a while back. They were, he asked for some help in civil disputes and personal disputes. These may not have been exactly the same guys, but that these guys would have probably been more involved with the spiritual aspects of, of the uh, people in the camps. And I think that's because God knew and it had, he had correctly identified the number one problem of his people at this point. They had a heart condition. I read common, one commentary that put it like this, at the heart of most problems is a problem with the heart. And unless people's hearts are changed by the Lord, their character and conduct will not change. And without the Lord, if it does change, it won't be a lasting change. See, God knew this. So he addressed this spiritual thing first. And later on in Numbers 11, Moses does exactly what the Lord commanded him to do. He appointed those 70 uh, elders and he did it in front of the Israelites so that they knew these were the guys that God had chosen to help Moses. The second problem God addresses was the matter of meat for the Israelites. Look at verse 18 with me. says, and say to the people, consecrate yourself for tomorrow and you shall eat meat for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord saying, who will give us meat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. And boy, did he. As the Israelites complained about no meat, Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent them meat. It says he sent them so much it would be coming out their nostrils and they would loathe it. You know, they wanted meat and he gave it to them and the results were so tragic. He left them to their own cravings and they failed that test so miserably. The next time we see Moses take his plea straight to God is in Numbers 12 and it's right after Aaron and Miriam in a bout of jealousy come to him with questions about his authority and as Aaron and Miriam are grumbling and complaining about Moses, God steps in and he defends Moses and then he struck Miriam with leprosy. Do you remember that? And because of the laws of the time, she was required to be separated from her family and sent outside the camp. And Aaron turns to Moses and he begs Moses, heal Miriam. But because of those laws of being unclean, and, and God responded by healing Miriam. And we know this because she was returned to the camp later. But because of those laws that were set way back in Leviticus, she had to endure seven days outside the camp, separated from her family, and it would have been great shame brought onto the family. And I would imagine Aaron felt such guilt and such shame that he didn't step in and stop her from doing what she did, that he went right along with her and accused Moses of things. See, sin had delayed their journey to the promised land but it hadn't stopped it. It had only delayed it. Because it says, we know that it didn't stop it. We looked down at, at Numbers 12. It says, after that, the people set out from Hazareth and they set up camp in the wilderness of Paran. It didn't stop it, 
It just slowed it. The sins of the Israelites slowed the progress of God's people, but it hadn't stopped the progress of God's plan. Nothing could do that. Moses showed that he trusted God as he consistently took his concerns to the Lord rather than grumbling and complaining about, the, about them in the hearing of the Lord. See, when we take our complaints to the Lord, we show that we trust him with our frustrations. We say, I trust you with my fears, and, and because of all that, I trust you with my future. We're saying to our Heavenly Father, I know that what you want is best for me. And I understand that sometimes your test is my best. I understand that your test sometimes is that test that I need, and I trust you with my future. See, these words are music to the Lord's ears, ladies. And ultimately, when we do that very thing, we bring such great honor to his name when we trust him in our journey. Please pray with me. Father, we um, confess now that we grumble and complain about everything. Father, this hits me right where I needed to hear, and I thank you for your truths. Father, I pray that I never fail that test that you place in front of me, that I would um, constantly keep my eyes on you and know that I can trust you with my future, and with everything that I have, I can take it to your feet. Father, remind us when we begin to grumble and complain about the things of the day and any time that we are fostering ungrateful hearts. And you want to hear them straight to you. Father, we love you. We love your word. Let us never take it for granted. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.